let's, uh, let's get in. Today what we're going to do is we are going to finish up chapter 13 in the book of Revelation. Then we're going to hit a pause for the summer, begin a new series next week, come back in the fall, and we'll pick up Revelation and 14, and we'll finish that out there. But uh, for now, open up those Bibles to Revelation 13, verse 11. All right, um, as we're getting there, as I'm getting there as well, 98-year-old Mother Superior from Ireland was dying, and she was in a, um, her convent, and her, the nuns were kind of taking care of her and man, just making her comfortable as her last days were, were, were ever approaching. And uh, so she's laying in the bed, they're taking care of her, all, doing all these things to make her comfortable, and they bring her a warm glass of milk, and uh, they, they bring it in there, and they kind of lifted it to her lips, and she is barely hit her lips, and she just like pushes away, refused, and uh, so one of the nuns uh, remembered something that she had in the kitchen. So she did that, went in the kitchen and poured a generous amount of Irish whiskey in the milk. And, uh, and so maybe this will work. They come back and they put that to her lips and she not only takes a sip, she downs the whole thing, the whole glass of milk, gone, right? And then immediately, it's like she kind of, her eyes lit up, right? We know what that means, right? They got, eyes got lit up and she sits up in the bed and, you know, she's got some life. So the nuns thought, man, what a great opportunity to ask her uh, for some golden nugget of wisdom. I mean, she's about to die. They, just give us something here, Mother Superior. What would you, Mother Superior, give us some wisdom? And she sat up in the bed and she said, don't sell that cow. All right. <laughs> uh, knowledge is, I'm sorry, wisdom is good. Wisdom is good. Wisdom's right. We know we love wisdom. Uh, wisdom is applied knowledge. And wisdom helps me and you uh, really make good choices in life uh, that, that bring us joy and happiness. Wisdom also prevents us from making bad choices in life that bring pain and suffering, right? So we all need wisdom. Today in verses 11 through 18, John's going to show us that wisdom is needed for you and I to determine if we follow the beast or if we follow the Christ. So that's what we're gonna see today in this call to have wisdom. We are in chapter 13. And if you haven't been with us, let me tell you what's going on. John is, is showing us this glimpse of heaven through a window. He's showing us the unseen reality that you and I live in a busted and broken up world. But, but, but if you look at it from ground zero, it just looks like chaos and we really don't know what's going on. So John is giving us a glimpse of heaven and showing us that the unseen reality that's actually happening is this, that Satan and his unholy trinity of the two beasts here are declaring war on the church and everything that bears the name of Christ while simultaneously seeking worshipers and world power. That's what's happening. It's a worldview from the, from the church age to all the way to the end of the world. John is giving us this picture of unseen realities. And what happened was, and we saw last week in, uh, in chapter 13, was Satan, this dragon, and, and these two beasts formed this unholy trinity. This dragon is a counterfeit. The, the dragon is the counterfeit father. Beast number one is counterfeit son. And beast number two today is counterfeit Holy Spirit. So Satan, 
The dragon employs these agents to accomplish that mission of destroying the church and declaring world power and worship. That's what's happening. So he, we saw at the end of 12, Satan, the dragon, is standing on the sea, and he unleashes beast number one. Beast number one comes out of the sea. And we told you, we looked at that, that beast number one is also known as the Antichrist. But after, through our study, we looked and we saw that the Antichrist is not just this end times evil person that comes at the very end of the age, but he is one that has been represented throughout all of history through several forms. Several little antichrists have come and it's not only representing of a person, but it's also representing every single human institution, human kingdom or government or state that is anti-Christ. That is who beast number one is, the state, the government. The beast institutionalized, all right? So that's what we saw last week. And then today, we will see this second beast. The second beast is not like the first beast, whereas the first beast came into the world to seize political power, Beast number two comes out of the earth to seize religious power. You have political, you have religious, you have state, and you have church. Like those are the two spheres how you get power in this world, right? Church and state, state and church, political, religious. And that is what the beast does. He's seeking, remember, world power and also worshiper, so he attacks the political sphere and the religious sphere. Today, as he gets into this religious sphere, um, he's going to show us that this beast presents himself as a false messiah, false teaching, which is the greatest threat to the church today. It's always been the greatest threat to the church. And he's going to call us in the face of the false prophet, false teaching to be wise. All right. So let me pray. And then we will get into the text here. Father, as I said, we, uh, some here today are, oh, we are weak. We are weary. We are worrying about work, about our jobs, about our children, about money, about future, about sickness, about death. And so God, today, to the weary Would you show them that their greatest need today is you? Every day, our greatest need is you. You are a solution to all things. So I pray that in this text, in these verses, you would show us who you are above all things. And then, God, I pray that you would also disturb uh, those who are just comfortable in life right now, that if things are just going great, And they have just decided to come to church. God, we don't come here to just check a religious obligation off. We come here to have an encounter with you. So I pray that you do that in all of us today. Help us to see you, your eyes, your glory, your purpose, your church, all through Jesus. We ask these things. Amen. All right, so let me read to you verses 11 through 15 first here. The second beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, 
It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. We said that was a fake resurrection last week. That's what that means. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. The first beast came out of the sea. The second beast comes out of the earth. The first beast had 10 horns. The second beast has two horns. This is a picture of Daniel 8. Two horns like a lamb. Only this lamb spoke like a dragon. This is another picture of a counterfeit Christ. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Now, who is the first beast? Does he have a name? Well, specifically, we are told, or the second beast, we are told that in Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 2010 of Revelation, that this second beast is called the false prophet. That's his name, false prophet, a.k.a. false teacher, false Messiah, having the appearance of religion of Jesus, but speaking like a dragon and like Satan dangerously close, right? But he is not the one true Christ. Now, let's look because at this wolf in sheep's clothing, which is what our Lord said in Matthew. Let's look at his mission. What is the mission of the second beast? Just like the first beast, many people have tried to interpret who this false prophet is throughout all of church history. They think it's a man, it's a person. They have to identify one single individual and clearly that's not what it's talking about. Many people thought that the false prophet was the Jewish religious system that fought against uh, Christ and eventually had Christ killed. Thought that was the false prophet, fake. The reformers thought that the Roman Catholic Church in the 15th century was the false prophet. Uh, I think that most people who have a futuristic view of this book, um, a dispensationalist would say that this is a literal end times person. So this false prophet comes right before the Antichrist comes, but it's a futuristic view. Now, uh, let, me, let me say this. If you've been walking through how we are interpreting this book, I think it's all of those things but it's not limited to all of those things. I think this false prophet and the apocalyptic symbolic language that John has been using in this letter, this false prophet here represents all false teachers that have occurred throughout the entire history of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. 
Over and over and over again, we have seen false teaching attack the church from the outside and also from the inside. So it's a lot of people, right? And yes, there will be another one in the future, but it's, it's not just one individual. This prophet represents all false teaching. And the purpose of this false prophet is to take your eyes off of worshiping the one true Jesus and distract you to worship everything else but Jesus. Like he knows you're religious and that you seek to find spirituality and truth. So he, he's, not, he's cool with that, but he's just trying to get your eyes off of everything else but Jesus. And here's some of the methods that he uses to do that in us. Look at one of the things that the false prophet does. He uses great signs, power to have great signs like making fire fall from heaven giving life to the statue of the beast. Fire falling from heaven. If you know your Bible, do you recall a prophet, one of God's true prophets in the Old Testament who called fire down from heaven? Elisha, a true prophet of God who is uh, the opponent of all of the false gods of Baal. So what does he do? He flexes the power of God calls down fire from heaven, destroys the gods of Baal. And now here you have this pretender prophet trying to imitate Elijah. He brings down fire and has these wonders. Of course, this is not new. These false prophets have been performing signs and wonders all the way back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt, right? Moses standing before Pharaoh, Moses performing signs and powers from God. He's the one true prophet, right? He's, God's with him. And what does Pharaoh's magicians do? Signs and wonders, all their craftiness. That was the beast. That's who was there. That's what they were doing. And they were looking at the signs and wonders and it was, it was terminating on the worship of all of the Egyptian gods, right? Beast. That's what was happening here. We know that these other forms of false prophets and, and beasts, we have Nebuchadnezzar and they were worshiping in Babylon a false uh, Nebuchadnezzar golden statue, right? Then you go to Rome, 20, or first century Rome and many of the cults, the religious cults in the first century, they were practicers of the occult, signs and wonders that led to Caesar worship. So this beast has been active in history all the way through, and he's very active today as well. What does the beast look like today? Performing signs and wonders and healings. He looks like one of those creepy charismaniacs on TV with the jackets. I'm talking Benny Hinn slaying people with his suit coat, trying to heal them of disease. That is the beast. Peter Popoff selling magic water at 3 a.m. in an infomercial. That's the beast. These are not just creepy guys. <laughs> They're not just bad guys. They're actually the beast. This is what he does. He gets our eyes so amazed by the signs and the wonders. Look at the healings. Look what's happening here. This guy healed the disease. This guy raised somebody from the dead. That's what the beast does. He gets our eyes off of Jesus 
and gets mesmerized by all of these fake prophets doing all of these healings and wonders. That is his game and he's really, really good at it. And you know, you, pro- you may know somebody about that who does those kind of things. They get so enamored up in this spiritual amazement, the wonder of healings, right? And all these things. Can God heal? Absolutely. But how do you know it's a fake prophet? How do you know it's a false prophet? How do you know it's the beast? It's because they never point to Jesus. It terminates on the sign and the wonder and the performer of the sign. If you just send in some money, this can happen to you too. That is a point to Jesus. And that's how you know you can smell the beast from a mile away because he doesn't lure people to worship the one true God, Jesus Christ. We have got to be wise to his ways. Mark 13, 22. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. I think why this is difficult is because I believe that we're all religious. And here's what I mean. I believe that when Solomon said that he, God wrote eternity on our hearts, he put something in there. Uh, A.W. Tozer would call that a God-sized hole. So there's something there, a cavity in our soul that says, hey, I gotta fill this with something. I have to believe in something, something religious. So we seek to fill it with something. And here's the deal. Satan and his beastly uh, profiting, his, his false teaching here, he really doesn't care what you pursue to fill it. He just wants you to not pursue Jesus. He doesn't care if you're on a spiritual journey. He doesn't care if you are religious. He doesn't even care if you uh, fall prey to Oprahality. That's Oprah spirituality, by the way. And yes, I went at Oprah, I sure did. Why? Because that takes people's eyes off the one true worship of Jesus Christ. It's a form of the beast. He infects our culture with what is called pluralism, many ways to God. You have some that are just outright, we know they're wrong. Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, just outright atheism. We, just, we can see those from a mile away, right? And then he comes at us through ones that are dangerously similar. Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism. Look like the lamb, speak like the dragon. We have got to be wise. We have got to see this mouthpiece of the dragon and his lies all the way. Now, there's another form. These are internal. I think external, cultural, uh, he uses truths in the culture to infect the church as well. Here's a couple of these ways that he tries to speak to us with his lies. Money is king. Get as much of it as you possibly can in the world. It's the measure of success. Sex with anyone, anywhere, anytime. God wants you to be happy. You're gonna marry them one day anyway. It's okay to make your kids gods by being devoted to their happiness. That's love. The work in, here's a new one. The working man is a sucker. Ah, oh, he just works all day and night. You know what you need to do? Stay home. Collect the checks, the stimmy, the unemployment checks. You don't really need to work. Just try to hit the lotto. You can game, be a YouTube star. 
That is the beast. God created you to work. He made you to work for his glory and purpose. And we have all of these lies in the culture that are infecting the mind of Christians. We have to see the game of the beast is to lie to us. False teaching is the threat to the church more than anything. I think, it's, I think false teaching is a bigger threat to the church more so than atheism. Way more than even the far left or the far right. The biggest threat of the church is false teaching. Here is the second thing, the point here. We have, we've seen the mission of the beast. Now let's look, talk about the mark of the beast. And that's really what you want to know, right? <laughs> oh, we're doing Revelation. Mark of the beast. What's the mark of the beast? Please tell us what the mark of the beast is. That's what everybody's fascination goes towards. Let's read this together in 1617. Also, the beast, that is, it, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Probably one of the most scariest passages in all of Scripture. It's fascinated and puzzled interpreters for centuries and centuries and centuries. This mark of the beast. Even some to obsess. This week, we got a letter at the office. Someone spent some time uh, on a piece of paper that was about that wide and about that big, calculating, decoding, obsessing over all of the different ways to find out who is the beast, his mark. I mean, there's calculator going into this. There's code breaking. I mean, this person spent, I'm talking, they had to have spent 10 hours trying to help the church elders determine who the beast is. And I just think about, God, what an unhealthy obsession. God, you just wasted time. You could have been preaching the gospel to so many people, but yet you have this unhealthy fascination determining who the beast is. What is the mark of the beast? You know, when I was a, a child, I was messed up. I watched scary movies. I'll tell you that right now. So I don't know if you're like me, but when I thought about the mark of the beast, I remember hearing and seeing the very first reference to that was in a movie called Omen 2. All right. And it's just, it's uh, yeah, I told you I was messed up. Um, so it's the story, this Damien Thorne, this kid, and he's the Antichrist. He's the beast, right? And they're trying to determine, is this the beast? Is the beast? And he, he, they're telling him he's the beast. He's all scared. He goes into the bathroom and gets a mirror and holds it up. And right there on his scalp, it said six, six, six. And I believed it. It's like, wow, there's really going to be a beast and he'll have a number, a literal number tattooed on his scalp. I, of course, I didn't know the Bible, so I just believed everything I saw in the movie. I'm going to show you that is not what John is talking about here. That is not exactly uh, anywhere close to what he's talking. Now, futurists, uh, we have some, we, we've, we've said that, hey, we can have some open interpretations here. So some people have different interpretations. We're not going to fight or squabble. But futurists say that this mark of the beast is a literal mark. It is a cell phone, a tattoo, a chip 
um, social security number, uh, and then most appropriately, most popular today, the mark of the beast is the vaccine. Why do they say it's a vaccine? Because it says here that those who don't have a mark of the beast can't buy or sell. And we see a little bit of that happening here, right? You potentially were like, oh, I'm not going to be able to go here, not being able to go there if you don't have the vaccine, right? So you, you, you can see how people could make that leap there. It's not a crazy thought. But my case is that is not what he is talking about. I think what leads people to consider a obsession or fascination with this is when John says to calculate the number of the beast. And so literally what they do is they get a calculator out and a decoder and they practice what is called gematria, which is where we get the word geometry from. And what, what it is is they take a name and they assign numbers to letters in someone's name and then they calculate the number of the beast. Adolf Hitler his name translated in gematria, of course, it means 666. That's his number. It adds up. Ronald Wilson Reagan had six letters in his first name, six letters in his middle name, six letters in his last name. Beast. He's the Antichrist. Here's some more. Nero, who we know that he was in rule and reign in the first century. Here's the stretch that people make. Nero's name in Greek was Neron Kaiser, which added up to 1,006, translated in Hebrew, 666. The possibilities are endless if you try to use gematria to try to determine who this individual is. Uh, There's a guy named um, Craig Keener, and he pointed out that if you add up the Roman numerals for the word cute, purple dragon, you get 666. You get get my point. Everybody has always been wrong in trying to determine who the beast is. So what is the mark of the beast? What is the mark of the beast that he's talking about here? Do you remember in Revelation 7 and 9, you'll see it again in 14 and 21, when we saw God marking the saints and sealing them with his name on our foreheads. You remember that? That's how he marked his own in the middle of tribulation and and suffering and all these things. God said, you're sealed, you're marked, you have the name of God on your foreheads. And we knew as we read through that, not to take that literally, right? We knew that we didn't have G-O-D across our foreheads. We knew that that was an internal reality, that that inside of us, that Holy Spirit marking internally by the way that we think and the way that we live, that was the internal mark of God. In the same way, here is the second beast here counterfeiting the seal of God. He marks his own. He declares ownership and authority over those that are his who worship and follow the beast. And it is not literal. Just like it's not literal as God's sealing, it's not literal here. What does it actually mean then? It's internal, but it says here 
that the mark of the beast is on their foreheads and their hands. What's that about? Do you remember the Shema in Deuteronomy 6? Where God told them to write the law on their heads, their hands, on the doorposts of their gates. What God was telling them was he he wanted their, their minds to be so saturated with the word of God it would be such an internal thought and a belief in their heads that they would work it out in their hands, which was the activity of their belief, right? Belief leads to right behavior, head, hands. That, he didn't mean for that to be taken literally, but we know that the, the Jewish people took it literally. And therefore they started to practice putting boxes on their heads called phylacteries. And, and they would, they had the scripture on, literally on their heads. I've been to Israel. They still do it. They walk around with boxes on their heads. They took it literally. They were wrong. God was talking about an internal reality, right belief and right behavior, the head and the hands. So the mark of the beast, listen, it is not literal. It is not some futuristic branding The mark of the beast today is in the hearts and on people who are hostile to God and his ways. They hold hands with sin. They practice habitual sin with no conviction, no repentance whatsoever. They don't want God's authority in their life at all, and they might even go to church. That is the mark of the beast not a futuristic branding, but a current reality of people who do not follow Jesus. And let me tell you something, church. Everyone in the world is marked. This Bible marks all people with either the mark of the beast or the seal of God. What is the mark of you today? Can you confidently say, I am marked and sealed in the name of God. He has declared mine on me. And if you know him, you're like, yes. But you, you, you might not know where you are. You don't really know if you are the Lord's or not. You might be bearing the mark of the beast today. I say that so that you would give your life to Christ and get rebranded with the name of God. You want that. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that here in a bit. Now, let me show you something else. This mark If you don't bear the mark of the beast, you don't get to buy or sell goods. That's what it says here. What does John mean by that? He means this. If you you don't compromise with the world, if you don't bear the mark of the beast, and instead you bear the name of God, it might just be hard for you to do business in this world as a Christian. If you don't lie, if you don't steal, and if you don't cheat, you may not climb the corporate ladder. You may not be the CEO. You might just work at Walmart telling people hi as they come in. Wouldn't it be cool if Christians were cool? You know what I mean? Like if the world would just look at us and say, they're not that bad. They're pretty cool. I think I want to be one like them. Church, listen, we will never be cool. We will never be cool. But we do have Christ. And if we have Christ, we have everything. 
So you may be opposed. You, as a follower of Jesus, bearing the name of God, you'll be pushed to the margins. You might lose a friend. College students, young adults, if you don't get drunk in college, you may be called weird. If you do not have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you're married to them, you might lose the boyfriend or the girlfriend. Are you willing to follow Christ and not compromise with the world? This number, let's talk about this as well because he says down at the bottom, he says the number of the beast, after calculating the number of the beast, it's 666. He says it's the number of a man. When he says the number of a man, he's not talking about a number of an individual man. He's talking about mankind, general people who have the mark of the beast. Why is it 666? That's what we want to know. What's the significance of the number? Well, let me help you understand for just a moment. I'm not really good at math. I was really bad in college at math. But six is one less than seven. You're welcome. You can put your phones down, your calculators. I just figured it out for you. Six is one less than seven. Seven in the Bible is a number of completion and perfection, isn't it? Perfection, seven. He didn't, like there's no one to 10 in God's kingdom. It's seven, seven is the highest you can go. Seven is perfection. So why is the number of the man, the beast, 666? Because he is not a seven. He's not a one either though, right? It's not even a two, six, that's that's pretty strong, right? He's got power, authority, pretty strong, his influence and his wickedness, like he's got power here, but no matter how hard he tries, he will never be a seven. He is perfectly incomplete. Why three sixes then? Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit fake trinity he is perfectly incomplete as a father and as a son and the holy spirit the number of a man he will never be god he is a wannabe god right last piece here is this and i hope i don't go long in the back because i got some things to say here last piece is wisdom to discern we need the call in 18 was a call for wisdom this is the only Exhortation. The only command that we're given in the entire passage is a call for wisdom, which is a method to fight the beast. Remember last week, the first beast, it was a call to endure, to remain faithful. And here now is the call to be wise, to spot the fake. We talked about last week, how do we spot the fake? We study the real, right? How do we spot the fake? We have to study the real Jesus. It's the only way, the only defense that we have. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk about the two strategies of how we're going to not only, uh, man, get defensive against this real enemy, but also to launch an offensive. All right. So the first thing is y'all have a personal responsibility. I'm going to talk to you for just a moment. You have a personal responsibility to engage 
the living God through your Bible that has been translated into your language, English, that you can read every single day, you have the responsibility. You have got to stop agreeing with Satan when he says, you don't know how to read your Bible and you don't have time to read your Bible. You're really, really busy and I just don't have time. You have got to stop agreeing with the accuser. You have to declare war and begin to pick up your Bible. And I don't mean, I don't mean an inspirational quote on a coffee cup or Pinterest or as you scroll through your media. I'm talking about getting up in the morning not reading words on a page, but lingering in God's word and hearing from God himself. You have to take seriously the Bible, God's primary revelation of himself, and we have got to start counterpunching the devil in his face. And you cannot, will not have any victory over him by doing those shortcuts, microwaving scripture, coming to even this gathering on Sunday, although great and needed and necessary, if that's all we ever do, it's like eating Skittles before running a marathon. It will not protect you and it will not give you endurance and it will not give you the wisdom that you need moving forward. So you have to say, yes, I've got to do this. My kids and their minds are at stake. My kids are being lied to on TikTok. And every time they open their phone, they're getting bombarded on the news with lies. Just indoctrination, indoctrination. And they're waiting for mamas and daddies and grandparents to study and then teach them the word of God. They're worth it, y'all. Your kids are worth it. And it begins with you personally modeling what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, not dropping them off at church, not pastor will teach them, but you taking seriously the commands of scripture personal and doing that. It's the first thing you need to do. All right. So if you need help, which I hope you suck up pride and say, yes, I need help. Check the box on your card today, that blue card, check a box, humble yourself before the Lord and say, I need help. That's all you got to do. We'll do the rest. We'll meet with you. We'll figure it out. All right. We'll help you walk through that. Now, that's number one. You have a personal, personal responsibility. Now let's talk about the corporate responsibility. It's not just me telling you what to go do. You might be sitting there saying, well, you're just telling us what to go do. That's like guilt tripping. Guilt tripping ain't going to do it. I know that. Adrenaline won't even win the war. We have to do something as a church corporately. The elders, we have a responsibility to do something about this. And let me Reminds you in Ephesians 4, listen to this. This is the responsibility of the pastors. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and, there's a dual thing here, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's our responsibility. So what are we going to do about it? 
What is LifePoint elders going to do about this issue? Well, I've been talking about it for about a month. I've been leaking little things that have been alluding about what we're going to do as a church to declare war against this enemy, to not only in a defensive posture, but also in an offensive posture. We don't just want to defend ourselves against the enemy all the time. No, we want to blast through the gates of hell. We want to engage a dark world with a light, win souls for Christ, bring his kingdom now on earth as it is in heaven. So it's, it's defensive, but it's also offensive. How are we going to do it corporately? Well, if you were here during the pandemic, one of the things that we said, as many churches said, I think, during the pandemic, man, what's post-pandemic church going to look like? If God, in fact, is sovereign and God is shaking up the world, shaking up the church, what is he trying to teach the church during this season? Maybe he just doesn't want us to go back to normal, right? We said, hey, we don't want to go back to normal. We want to go get back to God is what we said. So, but here's the truth of the matter, and this is full transparency. In many ways, we've gone back to normal. We go to church on Sunday sing some songs. And, and I'm not, I am not minimizing the importance of this. Please hear me. We come here. We need this. Yes. We sing. We hear the word of God. We leave. Wednesday night, what do the students do? Song, sermon again, go to groups. Once again, nothing wrong with those things. But that's, that's the same thing we've always done. And our enemy is crafty and he has new ways of scheming against us. So what we've said is, the way forward, we got to do something different. We can't continue to do the same thing over and over again because we believe that all, if all we do as a church is continue to make church, and that means events, programs, big gatherings, we will we'll get a few disciples. We'll get a few. But if we make disciples, we'll always get the church. So we are, as a church, launching a very intense making uh, disciples initiative in our church, a focus on that. And the very first piece of that, how that worked out in our church was, we're taking the students who regularly gather on Wednesday nights here, uh, they are going to combine ministries with the Smyrna campus. And let me tell you why, in case you didn't hear that. Some people didn't hear the meeting and they heard it second tier, third tier information. And they're, oh, what's going on? Listen, if you saw what, would happen, what happens here on Wednesday night, you'd understand. We are out of space. We have leaders that have uh, some ratios to leader to students is one to 10 or 12 and some even more than that. We have small little rooms and they're not conducive to small groups of making actual disciples. It's like you have 12 middle schoolers in one room. That's hard to kind of keep their attention, right? So it's like playing referee, blowing the whistle kind of deal and just running around. We have so many kids here, which is great, but they're not getting deep, intentional discipleship that they actually need to survive in the future. I'm not against doing events for our church and kids and students. I'm not. Please hear me. But I know that jokes and cokes and tacos are not going to make our kids survive in the future. And you know that too. You, if you're a parent in the room, you want your student to be and look like Jesus. And so by moving over there, 
They're going to reduce the size of the group. We're going to begin to, because we can't do that here, right? We don't have space to get any more. There's just, we're outgrowing it, not to mention the, the rapidly growing community that we're in. We have no space to do that here. So we're going to combine there. We'll, we'll address the unity and the maturity we just read about in Ephesians 4. Those are our, that's our church members over there. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ over there. I don't care if we don't like it or we're uncomfortable. That's our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to do that and address the unity. But then we're going to take our students and we're going to grow them into mature manhood because you want that for your students. So that's what we're doing. That's why we're combining. But let me speak to the other half of that. What are you going to do with a vacant building here? Creek, no students Wednesday night? Number one, we can't do anything else with a building as long as the students are here because they're occupying all the space. So what do we do with a vacant building? Well, we're going to launch this intense disciple-making institution on our campus for LifePoint Church on Wednesday nights here. We are going to populate all of these rooms with men's groups, women's groups, single moms groups, teachers groups, grandparents groups, single moms, single dads. We're going to have gender-based, one-on-one, and I mean intentional discipleship making groups. We're going to use this building well, and it's going to take some time. And here's the beauty of all these things. As we're, we're doing the equipping here, equipping, training up moms and dads so then they can go home and teach their children more how to pray and read and sing. And we're, we're, we're attacking it from all different avenues. And is it a change? Yes, it is. But we were open-minded to God changing the way that we did church. And I will tell you this, I told the, when we met the parents, I'm, I'm wrapping up, I promise. But when I first heard about this move with the students and sliding over, I was hostile to it. I was very hostile. I was possessive. Oh, our church, our campus. Oh man, you can't take the students out of here. That's what I did for about three, four months. And then I just couldn't ignore the fact that everything I fought was all preferences. God was saying, you go here, man. I'm taking you here. Get your eyes up and stop looking here. And when I got a big vision of a big God, I, I softened to those things I understand. So I hope that you do too. If you have any questions about that plan, be it Wednesday students moving over or uh, Wednesday night's stuff happening here with discipleship making, please come talk to me today. But here's where I wanna leave you with some action to do something with today. Okay, this is where you say, okay, what do I do with what you just said? There's two things. Number one, if you want to fight Satan, you have to first surrender to the Savior. If you want to have any shot ever fighting against this devil, against Satan himself, you have to first surrender to your Savior, Jesus Christ. You have to give up your way, your life, your wants, your, disease, your desires. You have to give way unto God and say, I'm not God, you are God. I'm a sinner, I agree with you, and I need a savior. And I know that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died, and was resurrected for me. And I don't trust myself to save myself. I trust in Jesus that is your first step. If you've never surrendered to the Savior, that's your first thing. That is your first counterpunch to the devil that you could possibly do. Now, how do we continue the fight? 
How do we jab? How do we continue to engage? Here's what we do. On Wednesday nights here, I need you. I need, if you're with me and you're tracking, you're like, yes, yes, yes. We need two people. I need people that are, that are, that are tired of sitting around the couch doing quiet times and they're ready to start leading people and teaching people what they know already. Like we know the goal in life is not to go from quiet times to couch to coffin. I mean, it's time to get up and get in the fight and make disciples, right? Not converts. So if you're in that category, you're like, I'm ready to start training and teaching some people what I know. I'm not perfect and I'm not a theologian, but I can teach people what I know. You grab the blue card today and say, I don't know what that looks like, but yes, I'll do something. Just reach out, we'll talk and whatever. The second thing is that some of you need to be discipled. You need to be in groups. You need to sit down, ask for help, suck up pride, and you need to get in one of our groups. We'll, we'll be doing them on Wednesday night, not only on Wednesday night, we'll be doing them other nights through the week too, but you need to say, yes, I'm getting ready for the fight moving forward. I'm gonna be defensive and I want to be offensive. My kids are worth it. I want the next generation to know my God. You check the box. So what we're gonna do now, we're gonna give you space to do that. Sometimes we just say, fill out the thing and you're waiting, you just stand up and start singing. We're not gonna stand up and sing right now. We're gonna give you space where you sit to grab a blue card and put something down. You don't have to know the answers, you just have to put a yes on the table. Hang on to that card. On the way out, put it in a basket by the door, Keep going to the right. I'll be glad to take that from you. Whatever's easiest, we'll reach out to you. We'll figure it out. But say yes to the Lord today. Some of you are already doing that, by the way. You're leading groups. Praise God for you. Don't lose heart. Stay the course. Father, we love you. And God, I cannot move people. There is no quote, there is no guilt tripping, and there is no adrenaline that I can muster up to get people to move to you. I am utterly dependent upon you, God, through the Holy Spirit moving your people. This is your church anyway. So God, I confess with my mouth that we need you to move our church. We need you to move people. We love you. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray, amen.